So turn with me, if you would, to John 11, and we're going to continue where David left off. I apologize, David. I'm, I'm not going to give you all the good stuff, just some of it. Stand if you would. Let's pick up at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village. He was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not, could, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone, Martha. The sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. They may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. It's given to us in love. Let's pray. Help us, Lord Jesus, we pray. For without you, we can do nothing. It's only through you that we have any hope at all. So meet us here, we pray. In your strong name, we ask it. Amen. Be seated. Okay. I told you it's Mother's Day, and Mother's Day is a complicated day. Because not everybody feels great about it. Now, I'm saying a serious thing now. I'm going to say a funny thing in a minute. I think it's funny. You may not think it's funny. 
This is immaterial to me. Um, but what I want to say in this part is that, especially moms, because this isn't a Mother's Day sermon, um, don't, don't go reading all of the blogs and the articles about 10 steps to be a better mom or whatever. It's toxic for your soul. Don't do it. Don't do it. You'll, you'll read it. It'll crush you. Okay? There's already too much. You don't need that. You need the Jesus who says, it is okay. I love you. And you are my daughter. That's what you need. Okay? Now, um, one of the reasons you're exhausted, this is where it transitions to the funny part, awkwardly. One of the reasons you're exhausted is because of this particular Mother's Day card that I snapped a picture of. Uh, it says, what I really want for Mother's Day. Dad, I'm hungry. Dad, where are my shoes? Dad, I can't find my phone. Dad, I have no clean socks. Dad, the dog threw up in my room. Dad, can I have a snack? Dad, I need help with my homework. Dad, we're out of milk. Dad, something smells weird in here. Dad, can you drive me everywhere? Dad, I'm still hungry. Dad, my third toe hurts. Dad, I need poster board, glitter pens, and stencils of the solar system tonight. <laughs> Dad, should we wake up mom? She's been napping for hours. <laughs> we have a whole new amen corner in the kids now. See, I think Mother's Day is a, dishonest, uh, is a dishonest day. Same as Father's Day and same as every other day. Because what it does is it creates a veneer of what things should be like or ought to be like, and, that they don't, and yet they don't feel like that at all. And maybe, maybe just maybe, you're coming in here today and you're actually wondering if the Jesus that we worship and the Jesus that we're proclaiming actually is a Jesus that can handle you. And not just the you that you let everyone else see, but all of you. Because when you get a picture of Jesus that, that looks like it should be, that, uh, it looks like it should be a production. It looks like we're supposed to feel about Jesus, that Jesus is my boyfriend, or I, I feel just ooey gooey and lovey dovey around Jesus. And I feel like raising my hands and closing my eyes and singing and praising. But what if that's not me? Does that have to be me in order to be heard by Jesus? Is that what I'm supposed to become in order to be welcomed by Jesus? One of the things that I was struck by as I studied this text this week 
is the incredible moments of honesty it forces us into. It forces us into honesty about ourselves. It lets us see the honest reactions of Jesus. So there's not a great way to outline it. It's a story. Um, But if I took it in four parts, we're going to see first the delay of Jesus. We're going to see a conversation that Jesus had with Martha. We're going to see a conversation that that Jesus had with Mary. And then we're going to see this glorious demonstration of Jesus. John starts out in John 11, giving us some really important clues that what he's about to tell us is important. We know that because he gives us, he spends a fair amount of time introducing people on how we should know them. He goes and he says in John 11, 1, he says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. John's getting ready to tell us that story in John 12. But he gives us a heads up that the Mary he talks about then, that's this Mary now. Now we've met Mary and Martha before. We've met them in Luke's gospel. It was in Luke's gospel where Jesus goes to the sister's home and we have the story, are you a Mary or are you a Martha? That's not what we're doing here, by the way. We know that they're sisters. We know that they're devout. We know that they believe Jesus. We know that they see and understand and process the world in very different ways. And so Jesus has received word that Lazarus was ill. The sisters, verse 3, sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, Outside of Peter and James and John, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are given the most direct attention in the Gospels and shown to be the closest to Jesus on his inner circle of friends. So this is intended to give us some weight as to what's happening here. And they send word to him and say, Jesus, the one whom you love, Lazarus, is ill. This is where a prayer meeting breaks out. Now, we don't see it as a prayer meeting because we don't see people bowing and and using uh, prayer language, but this is what they're doing. They're sending a prayer to Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, the one whom you love is ill. Look Look at this prayer meeting. They didn't ask Jesus for action or antidote, but merely to bring their need to his attention. Some have wondered that perhaps... The Apostle John is giving us a window into what prayer really is, especially when we don't know what to do or what to ask for. Many of us are fearful that we will presume upon God's favor by asking too much or that we won't pray right by asking too little. And here, what does John show us? John shows us here that it's appropriate and enough Simply to bring our needs to Jesus. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now look what Jesus says. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
Jesus said this isn't a terminal illness. Now, look, we've read the story. We know what's getting ready to happen. Jesus knows what's getting ready to happen. How in the world then does he say this is not a terminal illness? Because the termination point where Lazarus' life ends is not in death. It passes through death, but it doesn't end in death. Because this is the reality for the Christian. This is the reality for the one who places their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus. Is that though our life may pass through death, our life does not terminate in death. And Jesus uses this moment to teach his disciples. Now, he says it's a vehicle for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, we don't know who this message was exactly for, though we know that Martha will later bring these words back up to Jesus. But we do know that John is preparing us as the reader to go to the deepest and darkest places of our sin-crippled world. Because for death, the last great enemy of the good creation of God, even death itself is non-terminal for the believer. It's an opportunity for the glory of God to be shown as the one who has not just the power, but the victory over death itself. But this passage, as I told you, is full of paradoxes, isn't it? This one stumped me for an extended period of time. I want you to look very carefully with me at verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Do you, do you hear this? John tells us two things that are vital to hold on to. The first thing is that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. John did not have to tell us that. John told us that because through the Spirit we need to hear that because we have to know that with what he's about to say in verse 6, that Jesus stayed two days longer. Do you know what the honest reaction to that is? How is that love? It is okay to ask that question. It is okay to wrestle with that. Because as the reader, we know how the story turns out. So we're not thrown by that. Okay, it's like you've gone, you've seen a very suspenseful movie. It was fantastic. You were on a roller coaster the whole time. You're like, this is amazing. I should take my friend and go see the movie too. 
So you go back to the theater again. You're seeing the movie for the second time. Your friend is seeing it for the first time. Part of you is watching the movie, and part of you is watching your friend to see them going on the same emotional roller coaster that you went on. And see, that's kind of like us. We, we don't feel the impact of this story as it's unfolding because we know how it ends. But you have felt the impact of this story as you have experienced it in your own life. As you have waited and prayed and sent word to God that something is very wrong in the world and you're trusting and waiting and believing that God's going to show up and he's late, it seems like. And you know what the next question is that goes through your mind. God, where were you? And you know what the next question that follows up that one is. It's not really a question. It's more of a resignation. Do you even really love me? Do you even really love me? There's that old saying that says the Lord never seems to get there when you want him, but when he arrives, he's always right on time. And that's great. It's, it's, it's a sweet saying. It fits the end of our story. But the beginning and the middle of the story, it just feels like salt poured on the wound. We don't know what to do with the messy in-between of life when we have seen life get really complicated and really messy. We don't know what to do. And there's a temptation, well, for those of us that are on the outside, not going through the moment itself, there's a temptation for us to try and go in and somehow make someone else feel better. And I know we mean well in doing that. But sometimes feeling better isn't what they need. They need to sit in the sadness and the pain because God is going to meet them there. That doesn't mean we don't weep with them. It doesn't mean we leave them alone. It just means that we don't try and offer them explanations that we don't have the ability to offer. We don't try to explain why God did something. I would never want to presume that I know why God has allowed or done something. Jesus' delays hurt. No matter who you are, no matter how solid your belief is, when Jesus seems to delay in showing up, it hurts. And, and if our text is this honest with us, can we be this honest with ourselves and with one another? The pain of waiting is not a deficiency in our theology, but a fact of it. It is painful because we know we are waiting for something that can make it better. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Verses 7 through 10. Look, after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. 
Um, the disciples remember what happened the last time they went to Judea. It was not a pleasant experience, not one that they would want to uh, put on their Instagram or get a postcard for. They said, Rabbi, the last time we were there, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you sure you want to go back there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he sees by the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus says, look, you have to trust me. You have to follow me. The disciples are not thrilled, and Jesus assures them being in the center of God's will is the safest place for them to be. Verses 11 through 16. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, they're reasonably confused at this point. I don't know why Jesus said it this way, but he did. And John wrote it down. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they said, okay. He'll get a solid eight or ten hours in and wake up and be cool. He'll be fine. And Jesus has spoken of his death. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. John's gospel gives us little insight into what pleases Jesus beyond keeping his command to love. But this statement gives us some. Believing Jesus brings him great delight. Believing Jesus brings him great delight. Trusting Jesus brings him great delight. And when our trust falters and our belief wavers, he's still delighted in you because you're his and he's yours. This is where I have learned to content myself in the midst of doubt and failure to take comfort in the Lord's delight in me. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So Thomas, the twin, says to his fellow disciples, all right, let's go. We may die with him. Thomas, I'm not sure. I don't know why he was saying that. Like, I'm not sure if he's like, let's go, everybody. Or it's like, ah, all right, fine. We're going to go die. Look, I'm not sure how to read Thomas. I like him. He's my kind of guy. I don't know how to read him. But nevertheless, they band together and they go. And as they go into the town, um, they, uh, they found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, why was that significant? Because in Jewish, uh, in Jewish um, belief, the stole still kind of hung around the body for three days, but at day four, like, that's it. Like, there's no more. This has been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated at the house. In these verses, there are things that are not clear and there are things that are clear. These things are clear. Lazarus is really dead and there is real grief. And both Jesus and those who follow him 
are late getting there. And the other thing that we see is this. In the two sisters, we see two very reasonable reactions to the death of their brother. The one sister, once she hears of the coming of Jesus, is immediately up to go and bring her complaint to his face directly. Her sister could not bring herself to rise from her sorrow to utter her complaint. Both responses are honest. Both responses are are something that Scripture reveals to us uh, in order to invite us into honesty. Martha is hurt and uses her words. Mary is hurt and has no words to utter. And Jesus hears them both. First, there's Martha. Look at verses 21 and 22. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha brings her honest lament before the Lord. Don't you see that that throughout the Psalms, we are invited again and again to bring our honest hurt, our honest petition, our honest complaint before the Lord. But we've been so inculcated to believe that if we grieve, if we, if we show any sense of, of uncertainty with where God is and what he's doing, that this is somehow a failure of our faith. Beloved, that's a lie. Stop it. It is not a failure of your faith to have a complaint to bring to God and ask him where he is. It is an evidence that you believe. It is an evidence that you have a belief that you can bring your complaint to someone and he'll hear you. She brings her complaint before the Lord in honest petition. If we didn't believe that God existed or cared, why would we bother to bring any of these things to him? It's an act of faith to bring to the Lord the honest cry and then wait on him to act. She says, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She trusts Jesus and she loves Jesus. She knows that miracles are ordinary interruptions in a disordered world and that Jesus is present. In Jesus' presence, there is in fact something truly wonderful that can happen. Look at these next few verses. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That is good Jewish and good Christian hope. The Jewish people believed that God would raise Israel on the last day. The Christian hope is that there will be a resurrection on the last day. She's like, I know, I believe that. Of course he'll rise again. And Jesus here was not looking to negate her hope, but deepen it. Jesus said to her, I, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this?
Jesus said, I, in person, am that resurrection, that life, and that last day here and now. I love uh, Frederick Buechner's um, uh, commentary on the Gospel of John. Frederick Bruner, sorry. Um, Bruner says this, um, Jesus makes eschatology, future, existential, present. He makes hope visible, the then, the now, the thing, a person. But he does not evacuate her future hope with his present hope. He says in verses 25 and 26 that the person who believes in me, though he die like Lazarus, he will live again. And not only that, everyone presently living and believing into him like you, Martha, will never die an eternal death. Do you, Martha, believe this? This is a personal question. Do you believe these facts? Martha, again, is invited to honesty, and in honesty gives him her answer. Look at what she says. She says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Did you see that she answered his question and didn't answer his question? She says, I don't know that I believe these things, but I believe you. Look at the tenderness of this moment. Jesus is the friend who came too late. She says, I don't understand these things, but I believe you, and that's enough. Jesus has a second conversation with her sister. Remember, Mary couldn't even summon the strength to go to Jesus when it was first announced that he had arrived in town, but now he's here, and in his grace, he's summoning Mary. He is asking for you. Verse 28, when she had said this, he went, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. She, Mary, is given dignity by Jesus. He meets her in her weakness and calls her to come near. Jesus doesn't wait on Mary's repentance for his invitation. He initiates a reconciliation with his personal invitation. Do you see that? Do you understand that no matter how long the silence has been between you and God, no matter how long you have been angry and you have been stoic and you have been shut down and shut off, God is not waiting for you to summon up the courage to say, you know what, you're wrong. You're right, I was wrong. God's invitation here and now is for you to come to him just as you are with all of your mess and all of your baggage and all of your sadness and it's going to be okay. Jesus, Jesus is the one that took the first step and invited Mary to come. There's a moment of resurrection here because when she heard his invitation, she was instantly raised. Look at what it said. She rose quickly and went to him. Do you know where, John, where else John uses that word when he describes the resurrection? There's even a mini resurrection right there. Resurrection doesn't mean it's all fixed. Resurrection means that there's a change happening. The gracious, inviting word of Jesus can conquer death and it can begin to break through the paralysis of depression and despair. And look at what happens. 
Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Notice that she's not bringing so much a petition of faith of what he might be able to do. At this point, she just brings her sadness. You're the friend that showed up too late. You could have stopped it. Jesus was moved and greatly troubled by their distress. He is not angry at their distress. He is not angry at their tears or at their mourning. He is not teaching them out of their distress. He is moved by it because he is saddened as well. Jesus is moved by the anguish that death causes his people. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is moved by our anguish and by our tears and by our hurt and that it matters to him? He is fully God and fully man. And when he asks, where have you laid him? And they show him. And Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible and it's yet um, filled with emotion. He bawled. He, he heaved tears. He wept. The world's certainty that death is the world's ultimate reality breaks Jesus' heart. The anguish caused by death breaks Jesus' heart. The merciless way that death and the devil prey on God's people breaks Jesus' heart. And it's right to say, if it breaks his heart so much, why doesn't he do something about it? And he does. But look, look at verses 36 and 37. The mockers, the serious ones, those around him that would scorn him, they take his display of emotion and see it as a sign of weakness. 36 and 37. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not, uh, who opened the eyes of the blind man, also have kept this man from dying? It was a good show while it lasted, friends, but Jesus has met his match. Everyone believes that. Everyone except Martha, that Jesus has met his match. And this is where now we see the display of Jesus. There's another display of emotion that Jesus shows here in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. The problem is the ESV is trying to make nice with some Greek that's really confusing. Let me give you Eugene Peterson's um, translation of it from the message. Peterson renders it this way. Then Jesus, the anger again welling up within him, arrived at the tomb. Did you hear it? The anger again welling up in him. Why is Jesus so deeply troubled? Why? Why is he angry? He knows what he's about to do. All of their sadness is going to turn into gladness. They're getting ready to see their friend, their brother raised from the dead. Why is Jesus angry? Is he angry at their lack of belief? No. Is he angry at their tears and at their mourning? 
No. I think Jesus knows something about this day. There is going to be a miracle and there is going to be a celebration, but there is also going to be much, much sadness in the world. There is going to be what about me and what about us and where is our miracle and where is our foretaste of future glory brought into the here and the now. And Jesus is grieved because he knows that there is so much hurt and wrong in the world and that it is one day going to be made untrue, but that day is not yet. And though this family gets their resurrection miracle, there are families all over the world, all throughout the centuries, that don't. And this weighs on Jesus. So it's comforting to know that this Jesus stands at the grave and has moved. But can I be really honest with you for a minute? I've talked a lot about honesty this day. Let me, let me just... I don't want a God that just is moved because I'm sad. I want a God that can do something about it. I need a God who can actually do something about the sadness because you see, the anger of Jesus here is not at the people, not at the weeping, not at the grief, not at the impatience. It is the anger of a fighter going into battle. It is the victor about to to step into the ring with death itself. It is Jesus doing something about the saddest thing in the whole world. But it's more than that even. It is, it's not just that Jesus is sad about the whole affair. It's not just that Jesus is a competitor getting ready to do battle and come out victorious. It is a man getting ready to, at this very moment, sign his own death warrant. As one scholar said, this is Jesus saying, if I bring Lazarus out, I'll bury myself. The only way for me to interrupt his funeral is to cause my funeral. Because just a few verses down outside of the text that we're reading today, in verses 45 and following, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered counsel and said, what are we to do? And Caiaphas said, we're going to kill him. Jesus and Martha talk for a minute about whether it's going to smell bad to open the stone. And then Jesus prays, and we see now why he delayed, why he was near yet far. The greatest good to come from all of this was that people would see and trust and know that the Father had sent him. And then he goes into battle. Death meets Christ, and Christ prevails. The good shepherd calls his sheep by name. Lazarus hears him, follows and obeys. A man bound walks out of the tomb. He walks out of the tomb. Friends, listen. He then commands the people to unbind him. It's instructive that even once raised from death to life, we still need some help. We still need some help in 
shaking off the old grave clothes. I don't know why Jesus delays. I don't know why some of our prayers seem to go unanswered. I don't know why it seems like he is so near and yet so far off. Here's the one thing that I do know. Jesus went to battle with death and came out victorious. And there is a day yet coming when all sad things are made untrue. And that Jesus loves you. And just because he delays, it doesn't mean he's forgotten you. And that may all be well and good. But there still may be coldness and sadness and anger in your heart. And that is okay too. We're not here to celebrate a Jesus that can't identify with every single thing we're feeling. Our hope is in him. Because he can and he does. And friend, he welcomes you this day to his table. He offers you himself because he knows that he's enough. The teacher is calling for you. He said, I, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live.